I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> it's a wonderful life. Yes, it's wonderful news. For when all these wonderful people get into the swim, it's a wonderful life. For never before has any film contained such a full measure of the joy of living, the drama of living, and above all, the glorious romance that makes this such a wonderful life. Don't you ever get tired of just reading about things? Yeah. Hey, what are you doing tonight? I don't want to get married to anybody, you understand? I want to do what I want to do. And, and you... This is a commissioned show sponsored by Chris Finnick. It is a film that we've been meaning to do holiday season after holiday season, but it's always too intimidatingly meaningful to so many people that it kind of gets left for next year each time. Chris made sure that that wouldn't happen again, so here it is. Frank Capra, born in 1897. Welcome to the show for the first time. The helmsman of many a golden age of Hollywood crowd pleaser like The Strong Man, Long Pants, For the Love of Mike, The Younger Generation, Ladies of Leisure, Platinum Blonde, Forbidden, American Madness, plus several that you've heard of and don't sound like the titles of pornographic films. It happened one night, and Mr. Deeds goes to town, you can't take it with you, and Mr. Smith goes to Washington, all of them stone-cold classics. He became well-known for a certain type of earnest filmmaking, which even in his day was dubbed Capricorni by the critics. He also made a series of propaganda films in the early 40s as America entered the Second World War, the Why We Fight series, which had modular-focused names like Prelude to War, The Nazis Strike, Divide and Conquer, Know Your Enemy, Colon, Japan, and in a producing capacity, The Negro Soldier. See Spike Lee's extraordinarily unsung De Five Bloods for a raw re-examination of that concerning the Vietnam War. This World War II filmmaking for Capra, however, is extremely pertinent to the events of It's a Wonderful Life, which absolutely concern that global conflict. I'll go you one further. We all love Jimmy Stewart's performance, but part of that halting, ambivalent, at times jittery and self-destructive on-screen persona here was drawing on a painful reality. Jimmy Stewart himself had just returned to acting after the war, and he really wasn't sure that he could pull this one off. He wasn't diagnosed with PTSD because at the time it was called shell shock, and they didn't know how deeply, creepingly upsetting its effects could be on men and women who were otherwise able to perform normal lives. Everything was still too close to World War II. But it's clearer in that context that George's troubles and the fraught energy behind their expression are coming from a place of authenticity. People have often wondered why this one has never been directly remade in some big Hollywood seasonal blockbuster yet, and it's not out of respect, nor is it out of an overabundance of brilliant new ideas regarding how to repackage Christmas for cinemas again this year. I would posit 
that the 1946 release date was absolutely key. Same as Casablanca, which was released in 1942, only a year after America entered the war, and at its core is about defying Nazis, with no certainty that we were going to win that one. The soul of It's a Wonderful Life revolves around one question. What is America going to be now? There's a two-act prologue leading up to the alternate timeline third act, which is so inspirational to Bob Zemeckis's Back to the Future Part 2 that we were watching It's a Wonderful Life last night and I turned off the sound and played some of Alan Silvestri's score over George's mounting bewilderment and panic, and it fit shockingly well, even down to sudden changes of pace and instrumental shifting. But that late 80s film was critiquing specifically Donald Trump's gaudy casino version of America at the end of that vapid, coke-riddled decade. It's a Wonderful Life presents us with multiple nightmare scenarios of America's decline should the better angels of its good intentions and sense of community be devoured by the demons of rampaging, heartless, wealthy, white old bastards and the negative qualities that they thrive on in the populace? Fear, anger and jealousy. It can't be remade, not exactly, because that question, for its era, was answered long ago, posed again and answered again in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. We can make a film that asks the question now, in the 2020s. Or we can make a film that asks the rhetorical question of a mid-40s America with a wearied cynicism borderlining on bitterness. It's kind of the oh my sweet summer child of Christmas movies. More than anything else, this story is about the rarely spoken, swiftly silenced frustrations of a decent man at perpetual war with his own inherent goodness. George Bailey wants to travel, he wants adventure, he wants to see the world, he wants to build things, he wants to be great, and we can recognize that at the end of the Great Depression, on the cusp of an economic boom, that the filmmakers are unaware America is about to enter, George's later aspirations, after the adventure, match up with billionaire industrialists like Walt Disney and Howard Hughes, American gods who died still frustrated that they were never able to achieve enough. What holds George back at every step is that he is presented with choices that entail either doing a good and selfless thing on behalf of others or walking away, washing his hands and claiming no responsibility. Every time he picks the former, because he's Peter Parker. He will never get to be Tony Stark because Tony began his life with a billionaire industrialist father. George is a friendly neighborhood buildings and loan manager. But what the film doesn't flinch on is the toll this takes on him, how every opportunity deliberately passed up hurts him and weighs on his heart, how holding his tongue can only last so long as the pressure builds up year after year, how it poisons his view until living hand to mouth and eschewing easy profits at the expense of the people of Bedford Falls, which he is blithely offered partway through with a cushy position as lapdog to Mr. Burns prototype Mr. Potter, has left George fixated upon money and how the not having enough of it when called upon will ruin him and by turns hurt the whole town, maybe even fatally. 
It is a terrible burden of anxiety to carry with him, and as we begin our film on Christmas Eve in 1945, George is considering suicide as possibly his only productive way out of a nightmare scenario that has arisen. Now, this film was based on a Christmas card, one of the few movies that can make that claim. Philip Van Doren Stern, a Civil War historian born in 1900, woke up from a dream in 1938 that reminded him of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. He got to writing in 1939, and after four years in 1943, he was finally happy with the short story that he named The Greatest Gift. However, like so many powerful works, no publisher was initially interested, so, in frustration, Philip turned it into a small print run of 200 and distributed it among friends and family at Christmas. It was then published as a novelette the year after and redistributed via Reader's Scope and Good Housekeeping, both of which sound like off-brand Reader's Digest, which renamed it The Man Who Was Never Born. Eventually, it wound up on the desk of RKO producer David Hempstead, who showed it to Cary Grant, who was interested in playing George. RKO bought the rights for $10,000 and then sold those rights to Frank Capra for the same $10,000. Frank ditched Grant, who I've always thought of as the George Clooney of that era, and he opted for Jimmy Stewart, who in a modern context, I would estimate, sits somewhere between Chris's Pine and Evans with a pinch of Ryan Gosling. Any more you want to add to that? He's cute, he's kind of a nerd, he's funny, but he's got a real seriousness under there and an anxiety and a darkness. Yeah. It's surprising to note that this wasn't an immediate smash hit. It seems like a Love Actually or a Jerry Maguire or a Paddington 2, something that unites critics and audiences and leaves everyone feeling great. But in 1946, I suspect everyone was still reeling from the Great Depression and the war, and they didn't want reminding of the uncertainty and desperation that their lives had been gripped by, and crucially, the question as to what America was going to become had not yet been answered. It's a Wonderful Life gained a warm and widespread following in the intervening decades, partly due to the copyright lapsing in 1975, which meant that TV networks could pick it up for a nominal fee, which got it major airplay. The cushioning blanket of years between and questions answered gave it a honey glaze of nostalgia and, to a degree, safety for those who were there at the time, and for those who weren't, an almost idyllic version of Norman Rockwell's chocolate box small town America lampooned in Gremlins. Many people who haven't seen it interpret the sweetness of the final moments as being spread throughout proceedings, unaware of the deep and potentially horrifying threat of despair at its core, like a Cthulhu wrapped in tinsel. Pointedly, this is an American classic which bangs the drum for something resembling socialism. The irony that if it were labelled so, in a literal sense, it would be rejected by the very small-town Americans that it holds in fond regard. It gets sharper every year. It is on the side of the hard-working men and women, the salt of the earth, and a piercing warning bell of throwing our lot in with the super-rich who don't give a shit about us. But again, 
In the decades since, the American dream has been weaponized by those same ultra-capitalists. The idea that a man can be born in poverty, but through hard work can climb the ladder and achieve massive financial success has been twinned with a paranoia that everyone else is trying to snatch those few places in Elysium reserved for the very successful. So you have to race harder and harder and kick them off the ladder, and if you ever see someone asking for a handout, you destroy that person! All you have to do is look at a compilation of 80s and 90s ads for sugary breakfast cereals. The amount of mascots trying to steal the children's cereals. It's the Krusty Burglar! Oh my god, he's stealing all the burgers! And the capitalists saying, no, 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 that's your cereal. You get that back, you fucking choke that rabbit out. I want to see you stamp on that leprechaun. <laughs> This film says that we can live together and support each other, making up for our individual shortcomings. It's not about becoming a god among men. That's Potter, and many have railed against his total lack of punishment for knowingly stealing $8,000 a pittance to him, but George's life, and by extension the safety and control of Bedford Falls. Nobody kills Humperdinck. He lives. Because this film, while it seems syrupy and concerns bird-brained angels, also deals in realities that we must all live with. There is no justice for the most accomplished criminals within a system that they made. Potter's punishment can be observed by his contrast to George. Both men are frustrated, but one of them has the love of an entire town. This is something money cannot buy, only a life extremely well lived. What is that, Geddes? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, I say... Just a minute, just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Potter. Just a minute. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny-ante building alone, I'll never know. But. Neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Probably... Here, you're all businessmen here. Doesn't make them better citizens? Doesn't make them better customers? You, you said that they... What'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait? Wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they... they do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I, you're the, you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. But let's step back to the beginning for a spell. I deliberately didn't read The Greatest Gift. I gave that task to Sharon so she could tell us what the significant differences are between source book and film. 
Okay, so the first thing to note about the short story is, well, as uh, Dorenstern said himself, he was trying to base something on A Christmas Carol, or it was it was sort of shaped around that structure, and I can very definitely see that there. The second thing as is, as you rightly point out, this is a horror story. In its original format, it's, it's very simple. There is nothing in it that I would say is not replicated somehow in the film. But if you imagine a... It's, it's the difference between a, a storyboard for planning a movie and the finished movie. It's it's very basic structure. Skeletal. It's skeletal, but they expand on almost everything in the short story. I could see where most of it became part of the film, to down to tiny details like George hitting the tree and leaving the the scar in the trunk. That is an incident that happened before today in the story. It's something he felt bad about because he wrecked his neighbor's tree and didn't tell him. But when he comes back to it after he's had his ex his in interaction with Clarence, who is also in the story, but he's not an angel and he's not Clarence. He appears as a traveling brush salesman. Wanna buy some brushes? Reevaluate your life? Yeah, basically, he, it, it, the, the, the precursor to the story where you see George's life play out is not in the, the book, is not in the short story. I don't think you could do that in, no. in 40 pages. Yeah, so essentially what happens is we start with George on the bridge, staring into the river, feeling hopeless about his life. Not because any significant thing has happened, but just because he despairs of how unimportant he is. He looks back on, he, he kind of looks at himself as a man who doesn't really mean a great deal to anybody. He's fine, he has a wife, he has children, he has a house, but he's not really done anything. He even mentions the fact that even the war didn't want him or something like that. So that, that element of him having some physical disability that means that he couldn't go and fight is, is a facet of it. And actually, this is not really expanded on, but you could easily see that as the internal lament of somebody who has been effectively rejected by his country and told, you are not good enough to come and fight for us, and how that despair might then underpin and undermine everything else good that he has. This must have been added later since it began in 1938. It took him four years to write in the interim America mm entered the war. It's possible, but he was all he was young enough that he could have been thinking about World War One for himself. But it certainly, yeah, the, by the time the story was finished, it was um, it, it could have been an, an addition. Even World War One didn't want me. I mean, I was seven at the time. <laughs> um, he's so he's on the bridge and thinking of throwing himself in the water, and he almost becomes hypnotized by the current underneath. And then this guy turns up and says, oh, what are you looking at? And what's going on there? And why are you here? And, and um, when George says to him, I wish I'd never been born. I, I, there's, there's no point to me being here. Uh, the chap says, well, I'm gonna give you an opportunity 
to see what that would be like. Provided you buy one of these lovely brushes. No, no. <laughs> okay, so the the, br the brushes come into the story thus. Yes, he I gives, want the brushy brush. He gives his case to George and says, effectively, you are now a brush salesman. This will give you an opportunity to go and knock on the doors of the, the houses of the people that you knew, but oh. now don't know you, and not for it not to seem out of place. That's a decent narrative conceit, rather than staggering around in the street, seeming like you're drunk drunk and raving, and you're going to get arrested and shot. That's the other thing. George instantly gets it. There is no, this is so weird, what's happening? But surely these people know me. It only takes one interaction for him to go, oh, this is how it is. And he knows everyone else he comes into contact with. But George with. Bailey has a real problem thinking fourth dimensionally. So it would appear. But this George is this fine is, with Oh, that. this is heavy, Clarence. Yeah. So he, he very quickly comes up with spiels and stories about why he knows certain things about the town and and doesn't know other things. So he does not run the buildings alone. He is a bank clerk. But he uh, starts to come across, as the, the story progresses, he starts to come across tiny, to him, relatively insignificant things about his life that had outcomes that would have been very different if he hadn't been there. So the first thing is, the bank he works at is shut down. And has been for 10 years and nobody's bought it and he finds out that the the bank clerk job that he applied for straight out of school uh, a schoolmate of his also applied for the same job but because George got it this other guy didn't get it however in this version of events the other guy did get it and stole $50,000 from them leaving the bank utterly Completely bereft screwed, yeah. and half the town scuppered financially because again as I said to Willow when we were watching the film this predates the government underpinning financial institutions yeah. um, and insuring them effectively and them, them have you know if, if a bank gets ripped off they claim on insurance that as far as I am aware was not a thing at the time so the whole town so when Babyface was running around with a, a tummy gun rubbing banks that money was never going to be returned well, unless the police caught him and hit him on the head yeah, with a I'm I'm not entirely sure how that would work metal baton. for like big chain banks. Maybe it was this was how it worked for small town banks that were right. not part of big um, big. In, uh, so effectively, what we're talking about is a giant mattress inside a vault that you stuff the whole town's money into. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's the thing that that that's the first thing that makes him go, oh, okay. Then he finds out that. So you just. Because you got a job and then did your job and didn't fuck over the entire town by stealing $50,000 of their money. Things went well for things them, went well rather for them, than badly. Rather than terribly. Yeah. Then he, uh, after building up some courage, goes to uh, fi find out what he can about Mary. <laughs> Is she... A 36-year-old single spinster librarian. She is not, but we'll come to that. Because, I mean, look at the bridge troll that Donna Reed became. Yeah. So so he's a, he's a bit reticent to go and see her because he, he doesn't, the way he puts it, he doesn't want to meet her and her not recognise him. He doesn't think he can take that to begin with. So he asks So, like, around, he doesn't just grab her and go, Mary, we've been married for 20 years! Oh! No, he does not do that at all. So he asks around about her and finds out that she married a guy called Art, who was the brother of the guy who ripped off the bank. 
um, who was also courting her back in the day when George himself was. Mary chose George, but in this version of events, she chose Art, presumably because Art was the only other person who asked, and the alternative is librarian and old maid. And she's just like, Donna <laughs> Reed is so hideous in this film. Really? I don't even know why even one man asked the, to marry her. The, the, the weird part is they're like, if we put glasses and clumpy shoes on her, she'll be ugly. No, dude, she's Donna Reed. Dude, she's actually kind of... <laughs> Like a 40s version of horror, but I mean, mm. those stockings have seams. I was just seams. about to say, you know those stockings have seams at the back, even though you don't see them. Um, so then he goes to see his parents and the... Hey, oh, so, hang on. So she's with another guy. Is he just humdrum? Well, that's oh. the third act. Oh, okay, okay. So he goes to see his parents because he thinks they'll know more about her. Mm. And finds out this is where the revelation about his younger brother Harry comes from. Right. So there's a picture on the wall of Harry that was taken when Harry turned 16. Right. And it was done at Potter Studios. This is where the Potter comes in. That's the only place Potter comes in. He's not some big magnate that's taking yeah. over the whole town. Thank you. We should all stop talking about Potter. You'll only encourage them. Mm, indeed. So he asks his mum about the photograph and she gets all upset and it turns out that Harry drowned on the day that photograph was taken. And then George remembers that when they went, after they went to the studio, it was a hot August day and on the way back, they went for a swim in the creek and Harry got a cramp and George pulled him out of the water. Right. But if he hadn't been there, Harry would have drowned. Harry would have drowned. Yeah. So that's the, the, the revelation there that his parents lost their only child right. and are relatively happy, but Sad. Sad. How he's got into their so house... It's not like Flood of the Navigator where they've got another kid knocking around that they yeah. blame That's all right. the rest we, of his life. We've got a spare. Um <laughs> kid died, Dave. <laughs> um, but he, he kind of gained access to the house by knocking on the door and saying that he was here to give out free samples for this brush company. And that's why... So his mum let him in and was really nice to him and offered to make him a cup of tea and, you know, just generally made him feel at home which he appreciated um, but then he so then he uses the brush sales technique again to go uh, to get into Mary's house it tells her that he's giving out free samples finds the nicest brush in the, the case which has a blue handle and multicolored um, bristles notes that the house she lives in with art and their two kids um, they have a blue sofa that he that they had, he and Mary had. He didn't want it, Mary did, she convinced him to buy it. She's so off partial to blue. She's off to partial to blue, yes. So clearly she's um, convinced Art to let her buy this sofa as well, but the brush matches the sofa. So he offers her this brush and says, this is a free sample, you can use it to clean your sofa. And she's very appreciative. And then uh, the kids are little shits. <laughs> Um, the little brother, the, the boy, who apparently is a dead ringer for his dad, is trying to shoot the sister and protesting because the sister won't agree to lie down and die. And then... <laughs> I just got my Red Rider BB gun, you gotta die. Yeah, and then tries to shoot George and says, you're dead, you're dead, why won't you lie down and die? And obviously this is... And he an grabs it off and goes, you'll shoot your eye out! Yeah, this is underpinning the fact that in this version of events, George never lived. Um, and then Art comes home, and Art is a violent alcoholic. Okay. Right. Something I have observed about this story so far, this town's been ruined by these two brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little 
it. And ultimately, all George had to do was not be a violent alcoholic and just... And not steal $50,000. I mean, okay, you may have a cookie for that. <laughs> I think it's worth at least one cookie. Yeah. For, for, for not doing absolutely terrible things. But it, like in the film, George is unselfishly good on multiple life-changing occasions. Yes, and I'm sure, and we will come to that and we will discuss that, yeah. but yeah, so the, so he... So my point is it's changed not so much the philosophy, but the focus of yes. the story. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And so, yeah, so Art comes home and he's like, we don't want no brush salesman, get out! And throws uh, George out. And George is like, oh my God, Mary has such a horrible life, what the hell where's have the, I done? Where's the Vitalis? Get, get the, the Vitalis! Yeah, indeed. Um, so he trudges back to the bridge where the brush salesman is still there and he says oh my god I, 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 you have to put me back this world is all wrong That's all it's, not, it's not just about me the people I'm leaving behind if I go I've had an impact they, yeah, they, they clearly need me I've made by not life. being a living shit I've had an impact on them in a positive way yes absolutely um, but one of the things that, that is also a facet of this that the brush salesman emphasises which Clarence also does in the movie is that this means you have no ties you can now go off and do whatever you want and be wherever you want and and you're not held back by parents and town and wife and children and all of the things that that people might examine and go these things are holding me down that is something they didn't put in the film and actually is quite crafty because it presents a temptation you say that that's what i got from that from the film really i get that from the film yes it's in, it's only in flashes, but it's there. Hmm. See, from okay, okay. But we'll we'll come to that. We'll di we'll discuss that when we talk about the film. So he, so the the guy says, okay, all right, you get your opportunity back. Give me the case back, and you can go and have your life. And so he runs back, and he finds the tree, and the cut is in the tree, so he knows that this is a world where he existed. And then, so he runs home, and... That's just like the photograph in Back to the Future. Yeah. Uh, so he runs home, and he hugs Mary. All and he... the pine trees. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> uh, and he runs upstairs, and wakes the kids up, and gives them lots of hugs, and says that, you know, they, they mean everything to him. And then he goes downstairs, and sits down on the sofa with Mary, and sits on the brush. Or was it? Because at that point, he'd kind of decided this was obviously a dream. I'd obviously just... I was staring into the water and I had this idle flight of fancy of what if my life had not included me. Um, and the brush is kind of this... Dun, dun, dun! It was all real! That just raises further Other questions! questions. <laughs> and the first thing I thought was, does that mean he exists in a world where somebody else got to be the brush salesman and came and left the brush for Mary? But... Anyway, that's beside the point. It anyway, doesn't make the story stronger. It doesn't make the story it, stronger. Just, just it's because just, uh, he had no idea how to finish it. <laughs> deep introspection and, and piecing over your life doesn't become more significant more. Because, because some weird temporal anomaly occurred. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but the, the, the story was included in a collection called The Other Side of the Clock, Stories Out of Time, Out of Place, mm -hmm. which... Skimming through what was included in it really reminded me of Lights from Distant Bonfires. Ooh. Available now. Yes. In beautiful paperback form. 18 Gothic Tales by 12 wonderful School of Movies listeners. Uh, but Van Dorenstern did the introduction for that collection, and it's got 
stories by H.G. Wells and, and a few other people who, who write that kind of stuff. And um, uh, The Greatest Gift is the last story in the collection. Right. So I found that on archive.org. I think it's called um, the thing that has the, the internet archive, basically where they put loads of free books and audio and films and things. If anybody's ever looking for anything on the internet, try there first. Especially if it's old. Everything's free, and if you can find it there, you've you've got access to it whenever you need it. Sounds like socialism to me. It does. That's why I like it. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, that was the story. And I, as well as reading it, I listened to uh, an audiobook version of it, which was, I, I had to go looking for another one because the three you sent me were appalling. Um, I found another one uh, for a woman who does voice acting and had recorded it as effectively part of her portfolio. Right. And she was really good. So that was, it was a nice listen and being able to listen to it and read it at the same time, that's, I've worked out, that's how I best absorb stuff. If I have the, the text and the sound, that's perfect for me. Okay. So it worked very well. So that was the story. And yeah, it's, it's clearly meant to have that sort of everything here is slightly off and slightly weird and uh, unsettling. It sort of does that, but I think a lot of that was I was visualising the film as well, which gave it an extra dimension. Okay, so the conceit of this film, as most of us will already know, is that uh, two angels are observing George in his plight and decide to send down an angel second class called Clarence who can earn his wings by helping George on this dark night of the soul. Which is sweet and reassuring in and of itself because it suggests that there is an external force out there watching us as we suffer and actually feeling compassion for it. Yes. And then we, along with the uh, angels, get to observe George's lifetime over the first two acts, uh, starting in 1919 on the Frozen Lake. When I never noticed this before, um, Sam goes down the uh, slope on a shovel going, hee-haw, just to tie you in with him as a teenager and then as a uh, successful businessman later on. Mm. His thing is going hee-haw. I like the fact that uh, it's the kind of movie where they can say, this person's irritating and that's kind of okay. This person's irritating and is probably going to end up obscenely wealthy and that's okay. Hee-haw. <laughs> George bears witness to Harry going straight into the ice. And it's a very kind of like immediate, like we would all do this thing, but at the same time there is an admiration there for someone who will immediately jump into a frozen lake to save a kid. And as a result, he is rewarded with the loss of use of his left ear, which sets in motion kind of a payment system for his good deeds in that in almost every case the thing he immediately gets for doing the thing that is good is actually bad. It makes it feel like you do this good thing and karmically you then receive a punishment. Yes, from in a certain the, perspective. In the short term. In the medium term, as things pan out, in some cases it seems to get even worse in the case of some of the good deeds that he does. Specifically, the sticking around and staying on to do his father's job. Mm. In the long term, by the end, every single one of the good things he does winds up becoming significant as a 
something that they can point at and go, because you did this good thing, rather than just because you didn't rob the buildings and loan, or because you weren't an abusive alcoholic, I can't believe that's the original story. <laughs> They're able to point to that and go, see, even though it fucking sucked at the time, this led to good things. So, in the immediate, George carried on working with just at one ear at uh, Mr. Gower's. At Willow pointed out, hang on, they store poisonous drugs right next to the candy that they give to children. That was the 40s. And we were like, yep, uh, that's, uh, that's how people operated back then. It was like, yeah. hey, children, would you like some lead? First off, there's a very, very sweet scene. As uh, uh, well, it's, it's it's up and down. The, the scene when he uh, uh, talks to both the uh, prominent ladies in in this film. You've got Violet, who they don't exactly slut shame her, but she's certainly seen as a little bit more of a, a fun time girl than Mary. She is, but my take on the way they frame Violet is that she is looked down on by most of the town. Mm. When you get to the end of her story. Yeah. Uh, because of the life that she's led. Well, the end of the film is not necessarily the end of her story, but the uh, the end of her story in Bedford Falls, yeah. seemingly. Indeed. But it is because she's effectively lived her life by, like you say, being a good time girl, going on lots of dates, getting the men she hangs out with to pay for most of the things for her. Mm. And eventually she hits a point where she has exhausted that particular supply of, of sustenance. She's in her mid-30s and the men that she's courting are now looking to get wives or have already got wives. Potentially. Or she's just had everybody in town and has reached a point where there isn't anybody new that she can... Romance. Romance, yeah. and But it's not as if it's framed like she's a bad person because of that. She's a shallow person, but she's not a particularly bad person. She doesn't go out of her way to hurt anybody. And although most of the town She's not manipulative. To, no. In some ways, Mary is quite a lot more manipulative than she is. Potentially so. But ultimately, Violet is... I don't think she's complex enough to be manipulative. She's she's not thinking that far ahead. No, she's not. Shoelaces? Please, Georgie. I like him. You like every boy. What's wrong with that? She is mostly looked down on by the people in the town, but she's not really looked down on by George. <laughs> no, Mary's looked down on by George. Uh, he says, do you want coconuts? And she's like, I don't like coconuts. Don't like the consistency. Not the taste, consistency. And he says, you don't like coconuts? Say, brainless, don't you know where coconuts come from? Look at here. From Tahiti, the Fiji Islands, the Coral Sea. A new magazine. I never saw it before. Of course you never. Only us explorers can get it. I've been nominated for membership in the National Geographic Society. Is this the year you can't hear on? George Bailey, I'll love you till the day I die. I'm going out exploring someday. You watch. And I'm going to have a couple of harems and maybe three or four wives. Wait and see. Dummy, don't you know coconuts come from far away? And I'm like, dude, our hero, ladies and gentlemen, the first thing he does is call this his future wife a dummy for not liking a food. Well, indeed. And this is, right, this is a thing, and I, I 
I don't know because I've never had this conversation with anybody, but I suspect that my take on It's a Wonderful Life is a little bit deviant to the standard. Well, you are a little bit deviant. I am. Um, The Eternals will be after you. But here's the thing. I don't think that George is particularly framed as a wonderful man who everybody should... Um, who, who's like this high-up hero that we can't possibly hope to attain, that he is this amazingly self-sacrificing saint that everybody should um, is not worthy to worship at the feet of. He is... A Steve Rogers? Like, Steve would never call Peggy dummy. No, he wouldn't. <laughs> and if <laughs> he did... That's because he's not stupid! He'd be picking his teeth up. <laughs> yeah, he would. Um, but I don't care if you're Captain America... George is very, very human. George doesn't always do the good thing. He doesn't even always do the selfless thing. But something always seems to be pulling him to do the right thing. And there are numerous occasions where we we tend to think of the right thing <clears throat> being the difficult choice. Like, there's a, an easy option and these easy options keep cropping up for George. But it's somehow, the way Jimmy Stewart plays him, it seems to be harder for him to take that easy option. Does that make sense? He's, he's like something, you can see it on his face. He starts trying to go down the selfish, this is the thing that would work best for me in this moment, but something will not let him do it. And we never really see what, got him to be that kind of person, but it is so consistent that we just totally believe that this is a fundamental part of who he is. That that right choice for him that's taking him down a path to a particular life, a wonderful life as it happens, is one that he cannot stray from. Something internally will not let him stray off that path. And I, th- I do think a big part of that is because we are looking at his life down the from the other end of that path we see the the lines that are supposed to draw him here one could even interpret his conclusion near the end of the film when potter says you're more good to your family dead than alive as well that's the right thing to do which is why he's in such turmoil Mm. because he's being impelled towards doing that right thing which is dreadful It's noteworthy that the film actually begins not with George on the bridge, but with prayers. Prayers from loads of different people who know him, all concerned about him. So it's kind of like they're showing the hand at the end of the movie that people really do care about him. And then what he's done has had an impact. Robert Anderson, who played the young George here, uh, when he was told to go to H.B. Warner playing Mr. Gower and tell him that uh, the drugs he'd been given to take around to a family that were ill uh, are in fact poison, and he can tell that in a fugue state after receiving news of his son's death, Mr. Gower has accidentally made this deadly prescription. The actor, the older actor, really did smack this poor boy up inside the head multiple times, I don't know whether his ear bleeding was FX blood, 
because it feels like the moment your child actor's ear starts bleeding and you hadn't intended for that to occur, stop. you stop the fucking cameras. <laughs> uh, but ultimately, I think it was all done in one take. So when uh, Warner hugs him afterwards, that's real. He's trying to reassure a panicking child mm. uh, who's... I mean, the, the whole scene is a child who that where the, he's always believed that adults are going in the right direction and has a horrible awakening to the fact that sometimes adults can do terrible things, not even on purpose, mm. and he has to be the voice of reason, which is bewildering for a child and really unsettling because you're being awoken to something which is a universal truth that they don't tell children. Yeah. And this this whole scene is so... It feels so authentic, and that would explain why. Because the boy who's acting as him is finding out that the man acting as the adult really will smack him around. Mm. And that pain, that bewilderment and confusion is absolutely real. Yeah. But this this is the scene where every time I watch this film, I start crying here, and I don't really stop. Mm. What? Why, that medicine should have been there an hour ago. Be over in five minutes for the plan. What is Miss Blaine's voice of capsules? I feel. Didn't you hear what I said? Yes, sir. I... What kind of tricks are you playing anyway? Why don't you bite into the limit and right away? Don't you know that boy's very sick? Thank you, Rudy. My sword here. You lazy loafer. Such a coward. You don't know what you're doing. You put something wrong in those capsules. I know you're really me. You got the telegram and you're upset. You put something bad in those capsules. It wasn't your fault, Mr. Gower. Just look and see what you did. Look at the bottle you took the powder from. It's poison, I tell you, it's poison. I know you feel bad. Oh. Don't hear my story again. Oh, no, Don't hear no, my no. story again. Oh, George. George. Oh, Mr. Gower, I would never tell anyone. I know you're feeling. I would have felt so good to die, I would. Luckily, though, the uh, uh, the people in charge of making sure that movie content was all uh, applied to the Hayes Code were all there to make sure that none of the profanity got through. There were words... There was profanity in this? Oh, uh, yeah, there, there's a list. Uh, you're going to have to look away because I don't want you to read ahead on this one. Oh, okay. But uh, uh, here are words they made sure were taken out of this filthy... Filthy script. Okay. They got rid of nuts to you. They got rid of I wish to God, because that is blasphemy. Okay. They got rid of I was up all night, because that is lewd in its intentions. What? They got rid of drinking. Characters are allowed to be drunk, but they're not really drinking on screen. Um, Also, the characters, when they're drunk, are not allowed to be nastily drunk, which is... I mean, they really stretch that because there is some drunk nastiness later in the movie. There is, yeah. Uh, No being offensively drunk. And definitely get rid of those words, lousy and jerk. Not allowed to call someone a jerk. The Hayes Code, if you remember, was uh, what movies had to keep them crap for decades, uh, where every single criminal had to be punished. Mr. Potter 
is a criminal who is not punished. They had to push and push and push to keep that as an ending because the uh, Hayes Code people were like, no, 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 You have the police pull up in a car with Mr. Potter. They give him back the $8,000 and they say, calm down, he's going to jail. And Catfra was like, no, 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 no. Yeah, technically speaking, Mr. Potter never breaks the law. He finds that money. And no one can prove he knows where it came from. Yeah, the old finders keepers rule. Yeah. So really the closest he gets to actual law breaking is the bearing false witness thing. Mm. (laughs) And I don't know how they've codified that into an actual law. If he's not in a court, he's not, it's not perjury. Well, the point is, if it went to court, uh, uh, it would still find him in favour because criminals who run the system. Mm. Uh, also, the snow that abounds in this, specifically during the uh, the later scenes, they <laughs> traditionally made snow in movies uh, out of cornflakes painted white. Yep, I know, I know. She's pulling a face. Uh, the for this, they uh, made a combination of shaved ice, and I was like, oh, cool, that sounds environmentally friendly. Um, plaster, that sounds less environmentally friendly, and foam. <laughs> And I was like, this sounds straight up toxic. Where did it end up? And they, they scattered that throughout the, uh, the, the landscape. And it, it, it fell the way snow is supposed to. Most of the shooting took place during a boiling hot summer. And people were uh, allowed at one point to go home for a whole day and uh, recuperate because Capra could see they were absolutely exhausted and was, were in danger of keeling over. Uh, so I, th- I suppose they got what we got when we went to uh, J.K. Rowling's Palace of Fun in um, Universal Studios, mm. where uh, you're standing blistering in the Florida heat in a model of Hogsmeade with snow on the roofs, and your British brain is screaming, everything about this is wrong! Absolutely, the cognitive dissonance was just intense. Yeah. Should have used coconut. I don't like coconut. So we jump forwards from 1919 to 1928. So George goes from being 12 years old to 21 years old. And this is just before he's supposed to go off to college, but he's got about three months leeway. So he's about to go off and travel the world. There are certain things in the uh, earlier part of the film that sort of keep George and Mary apart. Like uh, his, I think the whole calling her dummy and not really hearing when she whispers in his bad ear, uh, George Bailey, I'll love you forever. When he sees her again later, it's, it's kind of like, I haven't noticed you for most of my teenage life, and that seems crazy. And then she goes off to college, which keeps her apart from him for another couple of years. Uh, but at this point, you've got the uh, conversation with his dad, which really felt Spielbergy to me. The, uh, the, the sit-down, quiet, one-to-one... Uh, you know, there, there's the whole like, you know, Harry runs in and out, the mother runs in and out, Annie runs in and out, and Annie is uh, very much conforming to a Hayes Code era mammy archetype mm. stereotype. And Annie's apparently been saving up money to buy a husband. <laughs> and Annie's played by Lillian Randolph, lovely actress, but we were still in that era. But the I love how understated that uh, that the chat between um, father and son is. We have that all figured out. See, Harry will take my job in the building alone, work there for four years, and then he'll go. Pretty young for that job. Oh, no younger than I was. Well, you were born older, George. How that? I say you were born older. I suppose you've decided what you want to do when you get out of college. Oh well, you know what I've always talked about: build things. Design new buildings, plan modern cities. 
Hmm. All that stuff I just talked Still after that first million before you're 30, huh? No, I'll sell for half that in cash. Huh? <laughs> of course, it's just a hope, but uh, you wouldn't consider coming back to the building alone, would you? Well, I... I... Well, Annie, why, why don't you draw up a chair? Then you'd be more comfortable and you could hear everything that's going on. I would if I thought I'd hear anything worth listening to. You would. I know it's soon to talk about it. No, not Pop. I... I couldn't. I, uh, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. The... No, I'm, I'm sorry, Pop. I didn't mean that. I... But I... It, it's this business of nickels and dimes and spending all your life trying to figure out how to save three cents and a length of pipe. I go crazy. I, I want to do something big and something important. You know, George, I feel that in a small way we are doing something important. It's satisfying a fundamental urge. It's deep in the race for a man to want his own roof and walls and fireplace. And we're helping him get those things in our shabby little office. I know, Bob. I, I know that. I... I... I wish I felt that uh, I, I've been hoarding pennies like a miser here in order to... Most of my friends have already finished college. I, I just feel like if I didn't get away, I'd bust. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. You're right, son. You see what I mean, don't you, Pop? This town is no place for any man unless he's willing to crawl to Potter. Now, you've got talent, son. I've seen it. You get yourself an education and get out of here. Pop, you want a shock? I think you're a great guy. Why, did you hear that, Annie? I heard it's about time one of you lunkheads said it. This informs on George's decision repeatedly having to be doubled down on as he continues to hold the fort. The plan is this man is to go on living, and unfortunately life does not see eye to eye with this. A quote often attributed to John Lennon is, Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Then when they're at the dance, <laughs> movie critics passed off this swimming pool beneath the floor as, Ah, this was movie tricks, trick photography, it wasn't real. And it's like, A, if it was, they were really, really good movie tricks, and... I'm not sure what function you serve as a critic, uh, saying, this swimming pool beneath the floor is a great big phony! It comes right off! <laughs> a very impressive final shot in Regis of the Lost Ark, but all those boxes aren't there. That's a matte painting! That's a fake image on that screen. There's no people behind there at all. The film was made cheaply. It wasn't a, a big effects piece. Um, and Did they have big effects pieces in 1946? King Kong? Hmm. Also, these were uh, film critics who'd watched Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and gone, well, there's no way that half a house nearly fell on him there. And it eh, probably did. It's Buster Keaton, so you don't say anything. No, it's a real school, it's a real pool, and it's in L.A., and it's still going. <laughs> and the guy who's like, uh, you know, Scram McFlam cutting in, and then uh, gets rejected by uh, Mary, ends up opening the floorboards and just looking at the way people are backing away from it. I'm like, specifically as it starts to open, there's just enough room for someone to take a tumble and smash their temple on the side 
of this. But all of that dancing backwards and forwards, that was done in camera. That wasn't like clever camera tricks. The uh, the nearly like, dancing by the edge to Buffalo Girls, that's, that's all just them very skillfully keeping their marks. Now we can talk about the fact that you and I have for several years now been watching the colorized version mm. of It's a Wonderful Life. Now it's kind of like saying I watched the dubbed version of any particular anime. People uh, who are f used to and familiar with uh, recolorizing of uh, black and white films uh, tend to look very much down their noses at the process. It's barbarism for cinema. Ultimately, the film was intended to come out in black and white. And I think a lot of this stems from really botched job color hacks done in the 80s and 90s. Specifically, Ted Turner wanted to update black and white films so that they would be appealing to a daytime 90s audience. And we've seen some of them, and they're horrible. The um, Vincent Price House on Haunted Hill was just garish and awful. The recolored... Land 9 from Outer Space. <laughs> uh, it's an awful film, but the bringing the colour to it did not help. And nope. Whenever Vampira turns up, she's the most noticeable because she has very her red fingers fingernails. Have become red. And it's like these patches of red chase her slowly around the screen and go, oh, I'm supposed to be over here. Now, oh, now I'm over here. It's like she's got these little alien finger warmers <laughs> that are inattentive in their jobs. However, this is a more contemporary job that's been done. This was, in fact, the third recolorization of It's a Wonderful Life. And it's really professional in what it's doing. What it adds is depth to the screen. It adds a sense of definition and it brings the actors that we're seeing into what feels like the present. There is something in watching old films that, that keeps you at a slight remove. It tells you that this happened in the past. Even when it's done stylistically in a modern context, if the Coen brothers put out a black and white movie set in the 1950s, you would feel like this happened 70 years ago. But with it all happening in colour now, you got, you've got everyone's skin and you notice little things in the background and you notice colours. The difference between summer and spring and the depths of winter in Bedford Falls is really pronounced. Mm. The difference between night and day is really pronounced. And certain characters wear certain colours repeatedly. Did you notice any specific ones? Well, the one we always talk about is that Mary is most often shown wearing blue, mm. with one notable exception. Two. Sorry, two. Uh, she's wearing blue-ish at the dance. It's kind of more of a green. I I would count that as part of the blue. Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, there's one more, and it is indeed notable. Yeah. Then Violet is usually wearing some take on pink. <laughs> there is one scene in which Mary is wearing pink. And she is attempting to manipulate George. It's effectively a love trap that yeah. she's set up. She's trying to be Violet. Yeah. Not with George, but with... Um, her mother is trying to set her up with Sam, who is this sort of boy on the rise. He thinks he's going to be this entrepreneur and very, very wealthy. And he's the one that Mary, what Mary's mother wants he's to He's going to call up. you all the way from New York. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's not who Mary is and that's not what she wants and she makes it very clear in that scene. The other one is towards the very end of the film when Mary and Violet are both wearing black and white, which sort of equalises them to a degree. Black is uh, 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 the all black, nothing just but black and white, is Potter's 
absence of colour altogether. He has several staff who work for him who are never really in frame or in shot. They're never supposed to be looked at, but his bodyguard, his dog's body, his smithers, Mm -hmm. they all wear black. So the suggestion that both Violet and Mary, these two very vibrant women who've been wearing bright colours throughout the whole way, are now clad in black, suggests that Potter is in some way winning, that his his hand is extending over things. Because the moment that George gets back and Mary's wearing black, she seems cheerful, but everything's about to come, be torn apart. Yeah. But when she wears blue, Donna Reed is absolutely luminous. She has been in black and white for decades, but when she wears blue, my goodness. Something about the way that they've uh, recolored her face and her eyes, they have this sort of soft brown, which just works beautifully with the way that the scenes are given that kind of 50s, 60s honey glow whenever she's around. They, they call it cheesecloth Willow can spot it a mile away and always notes that when it's on the women, cheesecloth. When it goes back to the men, no cheesecloth. Mm. But the reason for it was so that the women, you wouldn't be able to see the detail in the women's faces. And if they had any lines or wrinkles or their makeup wasn't Mm. quite just so, you wouldn't be able to tell. You may have no wrinkles, ladies. You may not age. You may not have laughter lines. Don't laugh. Don't smile. Don't wrinkle your forehead. Don't make any expressions that are particularly pronounced. We want you to be kind of Mm robot-faced for the rest of your lives. And you need to worry because if you smile now, 20 years from now, that's a wrinkle, lady. You'll get crow's feet. And we want that to stop but the guy who uh, uh, opens up the uh, floor is the original alfalfa and that's going to not really mean much to any of our listeners because they're not 120 years old or contract players in the 50s <laughs> there was a thing called the little rascals alfalfa had odd hair okay. and he was a little stinker yeah luckily alfalfa was an orphan owned by the studio oh, oh i see yeah, that makes sense. yeah. carl schweitzer but it's here um somebody pointed out that uh george is very tall all the time, which is obvious, but that especially at the party scenes, people gather round him. And I thought it was like a lighthouse, but that's a poor analogy because you don't really want to gather around a lighthouse. A lighthouse is on sharp, scary rocks. It's more like, I don't really want to like throw the Disney analogy out, but ultimately what they're doing here is more about landscaping. Every land in Disney World is built around a tall landmark that you can congregate to. So... In Disney World, Florida, it's the uh, Sleeping Beauty Castle, and it's so tall that you can see it from pretty much anywhere else in the park. It's a fixed point, so if you want to find your way to somewhere else, you don't even necessarily need a map. You just start heading towards that castle, and then you can... It's like the spokes of a uh, cartwheel. And George is that for this town. I don't know whether just hiring... Jimmy Stewart, um, Capra was like, oh yeah, thinking about it, we can shoot him in this way. So when people flock to him and they're rushing in and out to say something to George, and they all seem to be excited to see him, he almost gets lost in the in the barrage of conversations he keeps having to start and then stop as everyone rushes off as well. Mm. We see how much he means to them, but less about how much they mean to him, yeah. except for Mary. It's also a visual metaphor for the fact that George is the one who sticks his head above the parapet. He is the 
the person who stands out because he has things he wants to do that don't make sense with what everybody else wants to do. They don't fit with the plans that everybody else has. If anyone else in the town has big dreams, they all revolve around getting rich. Mm. George's dreams do not. Yeah, the adventure dreams that he has at the beginning. For a start, when he uh, starts to tell Violet about, oh, well, we'll climb a mountain and we'll feel the grass beneath our toes and we'll be able to look out and see the whole place. I'm like, I really wish I could go back in time and let this fictional character play Breath of the Wild on the Switch. He would love it. Yeah. But, but when he tells Violet, she's like, what's that? Walking up mountains? Taking our shoes off? This is heresy, sir. Mm. And she does not want to know. Yeah. All his ideals are about freedom mm. and being able to get somewhere where he has a view and a sense of space and expansiveness. And that does not fit at all with what with the sort of little hometown living that most people seem to they want him to be small but he is too big for this town he already is too big for the physically town. speaking yeah. Yeah. and i can completely commiserate with that and there are multiple main characters in the new century multiverse who also desire to get away from their responsibilities not necessarily because they want to be irresponsible but because they have a yearning to explore the world that's mine so i warmed to george immediately there's a snap in the air can you smell it? No, just cat. I caught it when you opened the window. Out there, my darling. Out there, adventure is waiting for us. In St. James's Park? Further. Through the cobblestone streets of London, past dark alleyways where dark plots are hatched every minute. Ugh, we've talked about this. We agreed that last time really would be the last. You could have been seen, kidnapped, killed. I'm not talking about sneaking out of the fights, though I could really use getting into a proper walloping right now. I mean to go beyond the alleyways, sneak further to the outskirts of London and beyond that and further still, out into the wild countryside. There we shall find the real world and the real people far from these boring courtiers, silk sheets and poxy jeweled eggs. That's where I want to roam. I know that you don't like or trust anyone, but but I dream of being out of this palace. I know I shouldn't, and I'm supposed to be a good little girl, but, but all the best intentions and warnings and reprimands in the world can't stop my mind from wandering off. It betrays me, you know my mind as I sleep. In my dreams I fly over the fields of England, through the night sky with all laid out before me like an embroidered blanket. I wish I could take you up there, Viola, flying onward and upward with the wind whipping through my hair, truly free. I, I wake up with my heart beating so fast, afraid I'm going to fall, but so excited. It takes me a moment to remember who I am. And then I'm in here again. And my whole life is laid out before me like an exquisitely crafted, one-of-a-kind China tea set. That excerpt was from The Princess Thieves. It was Gwendolyn. But Miguel from Tiger's Eye Wants to Roam. Jeremy from Steamheart. Abigail from Secret Rooms. Colo Nash from Panther Soul. Penny from Stonespring Maidens. Charlie from Back in Time Plus Space, 
Much like Bilbo from The Hobbit, I'm torn between a need for a cozy, quiet home where I can write and a yearning to be out there experiencing the world itself. Exploration both external and internal. Now, when Mary takes him, now that they're sopping wet, having fallen into this uh, revealing pool, uh, past this old abandoned house, uh, they were going to, they got a, uh, a stone thrower to be a, a double for uh, Donna Reed. And she was like, I can throw stones and uh, managed to do it with, a, with extreme accuracy. I think at, at some later point, they got a cow on set and Frank Capra was like, I bet you can't milk that cow. And Donna Reed was like, rolled up her sleeves. I will milk the shit out of that cow. I hadn't caught it so much before, but he kind of charms her with his, this is what I want to do. And then she says nothing. She just picks up a stone and throws it. And this is shortly after he told her that if you throw a stone and break a window, you make a wish. George naturally asks, what did you wish for? And all she does is smile enigmatically and wander off. One of the uh, videos I did not watch in my... Uh, research over this film was film theory it's a wonderful life's ending is a living nightmare and then the thumbnail has this is hell on it and i thought how far do you have to stretch your version of reality to make that your interpretation of this film and i thought that if you were being particularly stubbornly personally obliged to read only the worst of possible outcomes uh, then it's possible mary made a wish that uh, George would marry her, and that turned out to be a curse because it meant that every time he got an opportunity to leave Bedford Falls, something else kept happening to keep him there. And again, this, this is deliberately missing, on purpose, everything that this movie actually has to say. Mm. But the list of things that keep George in Bedford Falls, only one of them is Mary. There are numerous other things that are not her. Well, no, because if she... Again, I haven't seen this video, don't know if this is what they said, but if she activated a curse right then, immediately his father has a stroke. Mm. Mm. Which sets in motion a chain of events to keep George captive. Okay, then I'll throw a rock at the old Granville house. Oh, no, don't. I, I love that old house. No, you see, you make a wish and then try and break some glass in. you got to be a pretty good shot nowadays, too. too oh, no, watch. George, don't. It, it's full of romance, that old place. I'd like to live in it. In that place? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't live in it as a ghost. Now watch. It's right in the second floor there, see? What'd you wish, George? Well, not just one wish, a whole hat full. Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and next year and a year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm coming back here and go to college and see what they know. And then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers a hundred stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. Were you going to throw a rock? Hey, that's pretty good. What'd you wish, Mary? Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? tonight can't, you come out tonight? can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? Dance by the light of the moon. What'd you wish when you threw that rock? Oh, no. Come on, no. tell me. If I told you, it might not come true. What is it you want, Mary? 
What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary. I'll take it. Then what? Well, then you could swallow it. And it all dissolves, see? And the moonbeams that shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. Am I talking too much? Yes! Why don't you kiss her instead of talking her to death? How's that? Why don't you kiss her instead of talking her to death? You want me to kiss her, huh? Oh, youth is wasted on the wrong people. Hey. Hey, hold on. Hey, mister, come on back out here. I'll show you some kiss that'll put hair back on your head. Then when Harry returns from college, this is what, uh, in 1932, because it's, it's, it says four years later after 1928, uh, a lot of significant things happen at this stage. First up, there's a, a three-month period still back in 1928 where George is still wearing a black armband, which stands out much more in the colour version. It does. Uh, and he's on his way out the door, and it becomes significant that if he leaves, the people are going, the people of the buildings alone and the town are going to go with Mr. Potter as their chief financier, as opposed to uh, having lost all faith in the buildings and loan out, out of being, being out of Bailey hands. Yeah, Potter wants to shut it down. Basically, he wants to dissolve it and have its assets distributed amongst the uh, the board, which includes him. And George's speech inspires the board enough that they are willing to keep pressing on with it, provided George is in charge. And there's that fantastic moment of uh, where uh, Stuart walks pretty much directly into the camera, so he is really close to us, and then gets the news, if you leave, they'll go with Potter, and his face falls. And I have seen Harrison Ford do that as Indiana Jones in shots I can't quite remember the specifics of. Uh, and like Spielberg watched this film very carefully and so much of the heart that came from Spielberg he learned perspective from some of the great masters like uh, Capra, Billy Wilder, David Lean, William Wyler, Alfred Hitchcock definitely although he didn't really do emotional stuff and John Ford. I say Hitchcock didn't do emotional stuff. What about Vertigo? Highly intense emotional obsession starring Jimmy Stewart as the opposite of George Bailey. Would you do me a favor? What? I want to feel like Melissa is alive just one last time. Okay. Here's a selection of her lingerie. Oh, oh please, please dress as my sexy dead wife. Oh, this is it's kind of wonderful to see early movies that then inspired later movies that were still part of my childhood that are now currently inspiring movies that are part of our kids' childhood. Teenage years now. Time flies. So Harry goes off to college in George's stead. This, takes, uh, this is a period of four years that George has been hanging on and holding the bag, in Harry's words, not doing what he wanted to do with his life and, and living effectively an extension of his own father's life. But because his father's such a respected man, very specifically to George, it still feels like the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And also, there are other peripheral elements to this. He says something later on about his father not being able to save enough money for Harry to go to college. The fact that George gave money that he had clearly worked for, at least in part, mm. to, to take himself to college, and he gave that to Harry so Harry could get an education. Mm. So Harry's living the life George was supposed to. Potentially. 
And there's this wonderful, sad little moment that, again, I did not notice uh, until this time watching. And we've seen this film uh, half a dozen times. Uh, that when, uh, you know, Harry's having a, a welcome back party and George is outside smoking a cigarette, looking off into the distance and a faint train whistles and the look of hurt on Jimmy Stewart's face at that point. And you uh, pointed out that a line I'd missed is that the sound of a train whistle is... He says it something about there's three most beautiful sounds in the world and one of them is a train whistle. I yeah. don't know if he says what the others are. But it's obviously twins with his yearning to to escape, to depart, to be able to kiss the place goodbye. Maybe not even forever, because he does keep talking about, I want to then come back. Like He doesn't want to... It's not like um, Vanessa in in The Heights, where she says, If I won the lottery, why, you'd never see me again, Mary! Uh, the you know for her she hates this place and can't stand to be here and is desperate to escape it, he doesn't express that he wants to go out and he wants to come back but he wants it to be on his terms but then there's that phone scene you know where we, we've already kind of mentioned it earlier where uh, um mary's mother is calling down the stairs to her pink dress daughter you know what's what's happening down there as in she doesn't really want her to hook up with george bailey and she cries out something which I don't think necessarily works for today's audience, and they would question mark it immediately and probably start tweeting about it. He's making violent love to me, mother. That didn't mean the same thing back then. No. I don't think. No, it didn't. Making love back in those days meant... Like A wooing. Necking. Kissing. Did... That kind of thing. Making out. Making out, yeah. Jimmy Stewart didn't want to do the phone scene. He, This is one of the key moments where, having come back to acting, he was like, I think this is too much, and then we have to kiss. He didn't want to kiss Donna Reed. Eventually, Capra managed to convince him, but the new negotiation was, you've got to do it really close up, and we'll only do it once. And this was the, the first take. And there's this incredible energy between the two of them as Mary begins to, you know realizes very sharply i'm manipulating this guy i'm sam on the other end of the phone has no fucking clue what's going on he's just hee-haw you i want you in on the ground floor you're going to invest in this plastics made of soybeans or chili i don't know the specifics of it that's for the money men to decide he is for the record being fondled by a lady friend jesus okay but you see Stuart and, and Reed really close up and they're just kind of like the, the, each other's energy is nervously bouncing off. And because it's a Hayes Code film, you know, they're not allowed to do too much. So when it finally does explode and it starts off with frustration and anger on George's part, which might put a lot of especially young viewers today off as, you know, he's shaking her and, you know, all, all but slapping her. Again, he can see what she was trying to do and offer him this opportunity. Every opportunity feels like another decision being taken out of his hands. Another iron chain attaching him to this place. Because they all come with conditions and they all come with, this is what everybody else would want. Mm. If you offered this to somebody else, they would see this as the precisely the thing that they're their world was supposed to be about mm. and that is something that he has tried to well not even tried to that that is so counter to this internal driver that he has mm. that has always said you are meant for 
other things. Not even necessarily bigger things or better things, just other things. But the, again, possibly working within the Hayes Code may have been to this film's benefit insofar as they don't just kiss romantically and passionately and throw all caution to the wind. The the key physical move at this point is they embrace each other and he's grabbing hold of her, not so much in desperation, but just recognition of someone else to be there with him. Mm. And he's qu- clearly quite taken aback that she cares that much about him and he had underestimated that. But the, the hold is so chaste and so frantic. And at the same time, you know, both of these nervous actors are pushing through it with a, a sense of what feels like just sort of genuine authenticity of we need to move on to the next stage. Mm, yeah. And also, I think you're right about the recognition as well. There's, there is a sense in the, the duration of that phone call that they are both being encouraged by society to take the lifeline or or whatever the the hand of opportunity that is being extended to them specifically by sam the 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 whole purpose of this phone call is that sam will ask mary to marry him Mm. but sam makes it about offering a, a job to george and so both of them are sort of being told sam's going to be the best person to come out of this town go with him now and it's and he's talking follow about, sam follow sam exactly and he's talking about building his factory in uh rockwell no mm. somewhere punks tawny rochester wherever it is it begins with r and it's not bedford falls it would be an opportunity to leave if leaving bedford falls is what they want that's a way out but George says, why don't you build it here? And he's not thinking about the money. He's thinking about the people. There are so many people here who are out of work because this steelworks or whatever it was that's nearby has closed down. So that there would be like a lot of joblessness. Sorry, at this stage, it's 1932. So they're well into the Great Depression. Yeah. So there's a lot of joblessness around. And George is encouraging Sam to do something to alleviate that. He's making a suggestion and and putting something to Sam that he would not have thought of otherwise, mm. thereby bringing not even... Again, it's not about profit. It's not about prosperity. It's about just giving people a chance. I'm going to play you that scene on the phone. So much of it is visual. So much gets lost if you put it on a podcast but also because you're looking at these two incredibly intense characters beginning to realise things about themselves, about each other. You're not really hearing clearly what Sam's saying. So I'm boosting the sound levels to illustrate how cannily, without even trying, George manages to bring a booming new industry to Bedford Falls, whilst at the same time slipping backwards inexorably into the trap of obligation. MVP on this scene is Donna Reed, when she realises that what she's offered him is actually hurting him, the exact opposite of what she wanted. Well, just a minute, I'll call him George! He doesn't want to speak to George, you idiot. Just so he asked for him, George! George, Sam wants to speak to you. Hi, Sam. Well, George Bailiofsky. Hey, a fine pal you are. What are you trying to do, steal my girl? Oh, what do you mean? Nobody's trying to steal anybody's girl. Here, here, here here's Mary. Oh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to talk to here, you. Tell Mary to get on the extension. You talk. Mother's on the extension. We... I am not. We can both hear. Come here. We're, we're listening, Sam. Well, look, I have a big deal coming up that's going to make... 
make us all rich. George, do you remember that night in Martini's bar when uh, you told me you'd read someplace about making plastics out of soybeans? Chili beans. You remember out of chili, out of soybeans. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 soybeans, yeah. Well, listen, Dad snapped up the idea and he's going to build a factory outside of Rochester. How do you like that? Rochester? Well, why Rochester? Well, why not? Can you think of anything better? Well, I don't know. Just why not right here? You remember that uh, that old tool and machinery works? Well, you tell your father you can get that for a song and all the labor he wants too. Half the town was thrown out of work when they closed down. Was that so? Well, I'll tell him. Hey, that sounds great. Ah, oh, baby, I knew you'd come through. Now, here's the point. Mary, Mary, you're in on this too. Now listen. Have you got any money? Money? Yeah. Well, a little. Well, now listen. I want you to put every cent you've got into our stock. Do you hear? And George. I may have a job for you. That is, unless you're still married to that broken-down building and loan. <laughs> well, this is the biggest thing since radio, and I'm letting you in on the ground floor. Oh, Mary. Mary. Well, uh, I'm here. Uh, will you tell that guy I'm giving him the chance of a lifetime, do you hear? The chance of a lifetime. He says it's the chance of a lifetime. Now, you listen to me. I don't want any plastics, and I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. And you're... And you're... George, George, George. We cut to the next scene where they're getting married. I've put it at 1933 just to give it a bit of time in between. It might still be 1932. Either way, the actual run on the bank uh, would have happened in 1930. 30. I don't know whether they were there were multiple runs on banks in smaller towns, sort of rippling out beyond the that ones that sense. that happened in the uh, in in the initial crash, which began in 1930. Mm. And it also, in fact, it might be that the bigger financial companies going under mm. a couple of years before would then have undermined this opportunity for insurance or, or something that would have helped with the smaller organizations you explained the actual financial situation unfolding with this run on the bank to willow quite neatly do you want to just sort of put that in that uh, uh fiscal chestnut for us yeah so okay obviously this isn't it's oversimplifying and neither on. of us are economists absolutely but the the essence of it is an area starts to financially struggle in particular a, a bank starts to financially struggle. Rumours go around that the bank is going to run out of money. Everybody panics and tries to withdraw their money at once to make sure that they get their money out before the bank collapses. As a result, the bank has no money left and collapses. For a recent example, toilet paper. To give us a better understanding, this is the YouTube channel Ordinary Things talking about the desperate history of panic buying. Our first case study in consumer calamity takes us to the early 1960s. On October 22, 1962, the American president and owner of the nation's sharpest haircut, JFK, announced that the Russians were preparing to point missiles at the country from a base in Cuba. This was an unprecedented escalation, provided that you don't count all the American missiles pointed at the USSR that were located in Turkey and Italy. But that was none of our business. JFK did his best to calm the nation's collective anxiety by listing all the places the USSR could now reduce to radioactive ash. 
The public reacted by calmly storming the supermarkets, filling their homes and makeshift bunkers with non-perishable food, because nothing cures radiation poisoning like tinned peaches. Meanwhile, in Russia, there wasn't a single instance of panic buying, because the Soviets had shrewdly decimated food supplies for the last 40 years. In America, city stores were gutted within a few days, because as well as food, people were stocking up on flashlights, batteries, and of course, toilet paper. So what is it about toilet paper that sends people into such an immediate frenzy? Well, there are a lot of assholes out there, but the answer is more complicated than that. The main reason that people start panic buying bog roll is because it's the first item that looks like it's running out. It is the largest everyday item, and therefore leaves the most conspicuous absence on the shelves. There's never actually a toilet paper shortage, there's a shelf space shortage. But all our little primate hunter-gatherer brains see is an absence, and we start wiping that shit off the shelves for ourselves. So the best thing you can do in situations like this is panic first! The sooner you give in to your anxieties, the bigger your head start will be on all those Johnny Panic Latelys. In 1973, Middle Eastern oil-producing countries collectively organized to reduce oil production by 5% every month. They did this in order to pressure oil-consuming countries who were supporting Israel in its occupation of disputed territories. Gas stations were soon overwhelmed with hordes of anxious drivers desperate to pump themselves silly. A separate but similar oil crisis followed in 1979 thanks to the Iranian Revolution putting the country's oil fields out of commission. With fresh memories of the first oil crisis, people learned from history and set out to swiftly repeat it. The queues returned, and it wasn't long before gas stations all over America were tapped out. But here's the interesting thing. Gas may have got expensive, but there was always more than enough to go round. The only reason the pumps ran out was because of the huge surge in demand. What's worse is that these 1970s cars would guzzle down about half a gallon of oil every hour while idling. So an estimated 150,000 barrels of ground goo were wasted every day that these queues lasted. In all panics, there is rarely actually a shortage of the coveted commodity. Smarter people than me might call this self-fulfilling prophecy, but I like to call it the self-eating snake of stupidity, TM. It begins with a media event that sparks the first initial wave of panic buying. The media then report on this panic, which in turn leads to more panic. This pattern continues until there is a genuine shortage and we're all left eating our own snake butts. In many ways, this is a rational response to the irrationality of crowds. This is a very famous scene. It's even uh, kind of parodied in The Simpsons, which kind of riffs on It's a Wonderful Life repeatedly because Springfield is a good stand-in for Bedford Falls, but with a very 90s spin to it. I don't even know what they'd do now in the 2020s, wherein Homer and Marge are now actually seven or eight years younger than we are. When The Simpsons began, I was Bart's age. Look at me! I know... We seem to be insane. I'm told! I beg your pardon? Oh, I'm like the Crypt Keeper! Okay, that's enough. <laughs> what do you mean the bank is out of money? Insolvent? You only have enough cash for the next three customers! Hey, what's the customers? Just a second here. No, no, I, I don't have your money here. It's in Bill's house and, and, and Fred's house. Hey, what the hell are you doing with my money in your house, Fred? <laughs> the panic is it's kind of what feeds into the, the Springfield ability to form an angry mob at the drop of a hat. In fact, over less than the drop of a hat. 
which itself is holding up a black mirror to America on Black Fridays and any other day that requires them to considerately assemble. Indeed. There's a good example of this in uh, British financial history as well, actually. The, there's oh, a... Britain is shit at this as well. <laughs> there's a difference between a bank and a building society. So a building society is, is closer to what the building and loan is. They're not exactly, but that's, that's more like what they are. Um, but they are not publicly traded. They are owned by the people who have accounts with them and everybody is like a shareholder in this organisation. There was a rash of building societies converting to banks whereby people who had money saved with them got windfalls because their, uh, their privately held shares became publicly traded shares. And as a result, a lot of building societies had their members trying to encourage them to become banks so that they would get a windfall. I worked for a building society at the time. The building society I worked for was resolute that they would not do this. And they actually put something in their terms and conditions to say that anybody newly opening accounts with us, if we ever do convert to a bank, not that we intend to, but you sign away your claim to any rights to any windfalls and they did this so that people would shut up asking them to become a bank because they wanted to stick with being a building society so that's my only foray to working in the financial services and it was for a building society and this happens on the day that uh, george and mary get married and they use their wedding fund to pay off the townspeople there is a lovely little moment where uh, one of the ladies this was not something that was mentioned to Jimmy Stewart beforehand, but the uh, lady who asks him for seven fifty, because uh, Kappa thought that just an odd number would be, uh, uh, it would show a modicum of additional consideration. And well, I guess I could live without that additional fifty cents. The so then the kiss he gives her is real. It's like a sudden moment of delight and surprise. I love her reaction of <laughs> okay, uh, Jimmy Stewart just kissed me. Anyway. <laughs> But it's a very, very sweet scene, as is the uh, you know, come back home to our weird, rainy little ruin that uh, Mary set up for him afterwards. Again, she's a... The word manipulator is too negative for what she does. She's She builds things as surprises, but they're always so positive in what she's doing, at least what she's trying to do. Yeah? Mm. She's very observant it's never about... for her it's about impressing something upon someone else almost always him yeah and she's she's quite canny about knowing what people's motives are mm. and why they behave in certain ways there's another thing that hasn't come within the heights at the end he needs to form an artistic opinion about the house the way Usnavi uh, is effectively sold the Bedford Falls of Washington Heights is visualise it like this. Mm. Also, another thing that, that sort of slots in towards the end, but George comes to realise that he doesn't necessarily have to give his dreams up. He might have to reshape them slightly, but he doesn't have to give them up entirely. Then there's a series of montages uh, which race by a lot of uh, years. I think more than people uh, would imagine because Jimmy Stewart's been playing mostly throughout this film, 21, maybe, and at this point, like 25, 26. And then it jumps forward to him being 34 and then 38. So 
it's you know a, a lot of this is him playing way younger than he is as an actor but you just kind of buy it because it's one actor playing him aside from the uh, the poor kid Robert Anderson who got smacked around by H.B. Warner I have heard people say nobody ages in Bedford Falls it's the curse wish that Mary made this is hell he's trapped there forever and it's like no Jimmy Stewart was playing 21 when he was 38 old man Gower wasn't as old as old man Gower is supposed to be at the beginning he's old man Gower at the end still though the guy lived for a long long time he might be a Highlander <laughs> which would explain why he was testing young George's head now you've probably already guessed that George never leaves Bedford Falls. No. Mary had her baby, a boy. Then she had another one, a girl. Day after day she worked away remaking the old Granville house into a home. Night after night, George came back late from the office. Unless, of course, war were declared. What's that? War were declared. Ma Bailey and Mrs. Hatch joined the Red Cross in Seoul. Mary had two more babies, but still found time to run the USO. Sam Wainwright made a fortune in plastic hoods for planes. Potter became head of the draft board. One A. One A. One A. Gower and Uncle Billy sold war bonds. Bert the cop was wounded in North Africa, got the Silver Star. Ernie, the taxi driver, parachuted into France. Marty helped capture the Remagen Bridge. Harry, Harry Bailey topped them all. A Navy flyer, he shot down 15 planes. Two of them as they were about to crash into a transport full of soldiers. For F, on account of his ear, George fought the Battle of Bedford Falls. Hold on, hold on, hold on now. Don't you know there's a war on? Air raid warden. Paper drives, scrap drives, rubber drives. Like everybody else, on VE Day, he wept and prayed. On VJ Day, he wept and prayed again. And this is America joining World War II, and there's a sharp moment in here when uh, it turns out Mr. Potter is given control of the draft, and he's looking at all these certificates and going, 1A, 1A... 1A, and just dismissively saying, all of these men in Bedford Falls are businessmen, our staff, our wage earners, they can all go to war. They can, you know, be away from town so their wives are panicking, or their sweethearts don't know quite what's going on. Maybe they're injured and they come home and uh, maybe they'll be uh, more amenable to uh, the things that I ask of them. Maybe they'll be killed and I can leave their widows in a very trapped position where they don't have the ability to say no to me. It's one of the most insidious moments in American cinema because it ties that in with the industrial military complex mm -hmm. and what effect the supremely rich industrialist has on that. And the fact that the whether they realise it consciously or not, and I strongly suspect that more of them realise it consciously than they are willing to admit... The idea that there have to be people who are desperate in the world so that they can have cheaper labour or labour that costs them nothing or people who have to pay more than they normally would and have choices taken away from them, that is, for them, that is desirable. 
because it enables them to continue to build their wealth and their empire. Hmm. But they hop, skip and jump through the war years, possibly out of discretion for the audience who... Would which would include a lot of now single ladies watching and crying. And potentially discretion for Jimmy Stewart as well and Indeed. anybody else on the crew who was involved. Notably, uh, Jimmy Stewart's character is classified as 4F, which was the same designation given to Steve Rogers in The First Avenger. They did not take me in the army. I was, um, interestingly enough, I was, I was 4P. <laughs> yes, in the, in the event of war, I'm a hostage. <laughs> But Harry comes home a war hero, so he's even more... Um, he's living a life that it feels like George wouldn't necessarily want to go and fight in a war, and they're curiously... Uh, they don't weigh in on that, but him being an... Is he an air raid warden? Just sort of telling people, get back inside, the Japanese might invade at any minute. Mm. Uh, he drools on himself at this point. <laughs> it's a really weird bit of physical comedy. Not not a job that people are thankful for. Yeah, for I think the so. He feels like a fool for years on end. The significance of what's happening with George at this point, though, is that he does not do one big dramatic heroic thing like Harry does. I mean, all right, Harry does like two or three big dramatic heroic things, but. George does lots of little things. He, you know, is, is the air raid warden. He does paper drives. He does, you know, metal, scrap metal collecting. All sorts of chipping away at the war effort type things that if you look at them on the small scale, you can say they don't matter, they're not important. And that, I think, leads back to this, the theme of the original story, which is a man looking at the smallness of his life and regretting that. But when those things all add up together and part of the essential heroism of what George achieves is not just what he does himself, it's what he inspires in other people, what he ends up making it possible for other people to do. And he's not resentful of his brother either. He, like when uh, Harry's coming home on that fateful Christmas Eve, he is handing out newspapers that proclaim Harry the war hero who's got this massive hero's welcome as he comes back and he's proud he's not like you know I, I, that should have been me mm. see this is the thing this is this is what I think really makes George as a character and Jimmy Stewart's performance in this George is not resentful he is not regretful and he is not uh, angry about the, the situations that he finds himself in however he does have resentful thoughts, he does have regretful thoughts, and he does have angry thoughts, but they are fleeting. They come and go, and Stuart manages to convey them to us in such a way that they don't undermine who George is as a person to us. They don't make us feel like he's trying, like he's really bitter, but he's forcing himself to do the thing that he thinks everybody thinks he should do. It's not like that at all. He has moments of... Like when Harry comes back from college and he's married and George has that realisation that this means that... Uh, that it, well, it's not so much the marriage as the offer of a better job <laughs> that means that he can't really expect Harry to take over at the, the savings job, and yeah. loan. He has that moment and then he lets it go. There's a little walk he, uh, where his face falls and the camera stays with him as people mill around him and he moves over to the new bride and uh, he... 
you can just see this, this little smile jumps onto his lips as he sort of like, yeah, just just smile and talk to her and just sort of ask about you know what's going on here and and sort of like estimate who she is as a person and he sort of gets gets back into the the swing of that. It's Bitterness is a very dislikable quality. It's a very dislikable quality on a screen hero or even a screen villain uh, because bitterness doesn't really help us do much. Mm. Anger can help us do things. It can it drive can us do. forwards. Yeah, it can be an energy. That Sometimes it can be corrosive. It yeah. can absolutely be harmful. But it at least anger as opposed to cold, coursing bitterness. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, envy can compel you forwards. Jealousy might even help. Yeah. Uh, fear might prevent you from doing something. Bitterness isn't really going to prevent you from doing much, but it will keep you circling the airport on very specific things. Yeah. But again, the reason why I think George is such a great character is because he, he is not... Uh, He's not a saint that we couldn't possibly hope to be as good as. He has a skill that he's developed over the years that is very emulatable, which is the ability to recognise that the plan you had is not going to carry out the way you wanted it to. Take a breath, shift your direction and carry on along the new path as opposed to letting it all build up so that you end up spending most of your life with your path going further and further away from what you intended and what you hoped for and being resentful and miserable about it because all you can think about is why did you not get that life? Why did you not get that path? Who fucked it up for you that you couldn't have the things you want? No, every time something happens that changes the situation for him, he gets frustrated and sometimes he expresses that and then he reorients himself and keeps moving. Oh, there's a, one note that I asked you to put a pin in. You know, at Harry's party, just after the point where, uh, in fact, maybe just before George is having that cigarette and hears the train whistle, the actor is uh, playing drunk and uh, he's being spun around by uh, Jimmy Stewart and told to walk off to the left. There's a sudden crashing like he's falling into dustbins and he shouts out, I'm okay. And Jimmy Stewart seems to be looking at something. That's because one of the techs had knocked over a whole bunch of stuff just to the left of the shot. And uh, the actor playing Uncle Billy rolled with it. A fellow by the name of Thomas John Mitchell. And you got that great kind of emergent moment. The tech thought that he was in serious trouble for ruining the shot. Capra gave him 10 extra dollars for production value. <laughs> Nice. But Uncle Billy, I'm going to uh, interpret his forgetfulness as some kind of mental condition. It seems like he really needs guidance, that the constantly putting uh, little pieces of string around his fingers to remind himself of something mm -hmm. to the point where he still forgets them. And George like sort of holds his finger at one point and is like, you probably don't need to make, to make this call anymore because now we're fucked, Uncle Billy. Where's my money? I felt like Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life when he's screaming at his Uncle Billy. I was like, where's the money? Where's that money, you fat motherfucker? Where's my money? Stay down on the ground. Stay down on the ground, you motherfucker. That's not the dialogue, but do y'all remember that scene from It's a Wonderful Life? Great movie, Frank Capra, 1946. This is uh, the uh, scene that probably infuriates children the most when they're watching this, because you're watching an incredibly rich man find that he has $8,000 and deciding to keep it. 
and you're like, as a kid, do you know how much damage that can do? How can a person be so evil? And then you explain to them who Bobby Kotick is, for example. Hmm. I, I think what it comes down to is how could somebody be so unfair? Yeah. That's what really gets children. It, it, before they really even have a concept of what's good and what's evil, they know what's fair they know and what, what's not. What seems like justice to them. Yeah. Denied. Denied. Obviously, this is a rather reductive thing to say, but I feel like there should be more six year olds on the Supreme Court. <laughs> because it feels like they'd be able to work out what was fair way quicker, even with a six year old comprehension of the scenarios. But yeah, this is a truly panic-inducing scenario, and the fact that it makes George break at this point, and he's practically throttling Uncle Billy for like, now we're ruined, and, and saying one of us is going to go down for this and it ain't going to be me is maybe the most unkind thing George says in the whole film. And this film. is what I mean. He's not a saint. He doesn't respond to everything with that selfless idealism that we have, for some reason, associated him mm. with. At no point does Captain America during Civil War go, listen, if Stark catches us and we go down, fuck you, Sam, you're taking the blame. This is, I'm going to claim this was all your idea. Mm. But yeah, when he goes crawling to Potter, the adjusted for inflation amount that he's offered is 270000 per year, which is a pretty good job for Potter. But it is a straightforward selling your soul scenario. Absolutely. And that's the thing. He's, he's getting an opportunity to, because even sort of says to him business trips to New York maybe you get to go to Europe once in a while he is throwing George the bone of that travel he had his heart so set on the trouble is that he has to do it in a framework of it being for Potter and I love the fact that he's like give me some time to think about it which is a very human thing to say rather than just immediately saying no no not at all but it's the shaking this fucker's hand and just Feeling How this wrong grasp. it feels. That's what I mean. This is this sort of internal, I, I, this is the thing that would be good for me, but something in my stomach is telling me this is wrong. Mm. It's, it's uh, skin crawling. Mm. And then I don't think we necessarily need to talk too much about what happens then. It's very memorable when uh, he starts to freak out. And the, the scene... After he's shouted at his family, which feels very uncomfortable. Not quite as uncomfortable as those Santa masks that the kids are all wearing, they by the way. Who fucking weird. made these things? Who knows? A, a nightmare man in a mask Somebody form. who went, you know what? Children dress as goblins. I want that to happen more than once a year. There isn't a Halloween costume as scary as these Santa masks. There really isn't. Just these, just these hollow eyes. Blank, empty eyes, like a doll's Nicholas's. eyes. Oh, so terrifying. Bearded children. This who is, knew? This is another example, <laughs> Little though, goblin of creatures. Elements of, of what he wanted in his life being present in the life he has instead. When he throws stuff on the floor, his desk, and he has like a, an artist's board set up, he's designing Bailey Park. He's the, the, He always wanted to be an architect. He's building houses. He is doing what he wanted to do. It's just that the framework is a bit different. Yeah. Potter gets told about the piece of land he completely overlooked that's near the cemetery that's quite cheap because it's near a cemetery. Mm. Uh, and that's where uh, George started building lovely little cheap houses for uh, people to move in. The fact that it's an Italian family that they uh, they help move in is very 
actually, this is America's bring me your tired, huddled masses. Bring me your immigrants. This is what small town America should be. Welcome. Come in. We've got space for you to live. Absolutely. There's one thing America has is and has always had is space. For this next bit, I'm going to call upon one of my favorite writers and orators, Bill Bryson. This is from a 20-year-old book, but it's been astonishingly prophetic, especially considering what's happened to Britain since the Brexit referendum. A remarkable thing about America, if you've been living for a long time in a crowded little place like the United Kingdom, is how very big and very empty so much of it is. Consider this. Montana, Wyoming, and North and South Dakota have an area twice the size of France, but a population less than that of South London. Alaska is bigger still and has even fewer people. Even my own adopted state of New Hampshire, in the relatively crowded Northeast, is 85% forest, and most of the rest is lakes. You can drive for very long periods in New Hampshire and never see anything but trees and mountains, not a house or a hamlet, or even, quite often, another car. I'm constantly tripped up by this. The curious thing is that a very great many Americans don't seem to see it this way. They think the country is way too crowded. Moves are constantly afoot to restrict access to national parks and wilderness areas on the grounds that they are dangerously overrun. Parts of them are unquestionably crowded, but that is only because 98% of visitors arrive by car and 98% of those venture no more than a couple of hundred feet from their metallic wombs. Elsewhere, however, you can have whole mountains to yourself, even in the most popular parks on the busiest days. Even more ominously, there is a growing belief that the best way of dealing with this supposed crisis is by expelling most of those not born here. There is an organization whose name escapes me. It may be dangerously small-minded reactionaries for a better America that periodically runs Ernest's carefully reasoned ads in the New York Times, Atlantic Monthly, and other important and influential publications, calling for an end to immigration because, as one of its ads explains, it is devastating our environment and the quality of our lives. Elsewhere, it adds, primarily because of immigration, we are rushing at breakneck speed toward an environmental and economic disaster. Give me a break, do. You could, I suppose, make an economic or even cultural case for cutting back on immigration, but not on the grounds that the country is running out of room. Anti-immigration arguments conveniently overlook the fact that America already expels a million immigrants a year, and that those who are here mostly do jobs that are too dirty, low-paying, or unsatisfying for the rest of us to do. Getting rid of immigrants is not suddenly going to open employment opportunities for those born here. All it's going to do is leave a lot of dishes unwashed, a lot of beds unmade, and a lot of fruit unpicked. This happened. This literally happened. The people who had no foresight decided they wanted to get rid of all the foreigners, manipulated by those in charge who easily preyed upon their bigotry to line their own pockets. Because if you're stultifyingly ignorant, you see the country as just a bucket overflowing with liquid, rather than being aware of the figurative complex machinery beneath the surface, and every important moving piece that keeps the system going. 
All that happened was the base, the foundation of our society was pushed out from under us. And then they complained because there was no one there to pick fruit. So many of the dentists went home, I spent two years waiting for my tooth to be fixed. At the exact time we needed the most medical staff on hand, during a fucking pandemic, we had sent these good, kind, dedicated people back home. Or they had left of their own accord, feeling unwelcome, and I don't blame them. We still have a medical crisis in this country. We are still understaffed, and our medical staff have been working flat out for years during a pandemic with no time for self-care. And our checks notes, yep, always conservative government didn't meaningfully supplement their wages, but they did encourage us to clap for them. We clapped. We got together on bridges during lockdown, maskless in London, on the evening news, and spread our diseases to each other and clapped for them. So you're underpaid, understaffed, undersupplied, overworked, exhausted, completely and utterly at the end of your tether, and we are ensuring that the hospitals will be clogged to the gills. But round of applause. Still less is it going to miraculously create a lot more breathing space for the rest of us. America already has one of the lowest proportions of immigrants in the developed world. Just 6% of people in the United States are foreign-born, compared with, for instance, 8% in Britain and 11% in France. America may or may not be heading for an environmental and economic disaster. But if so, it certainly isn't because six people in every hundred were born somewhere else. There aren't many human acts more foolishly simplistic or misguided, or more likely to lead to careless evil, than blaming general problems on small minorities. Yet that seems to be quite a respectable impulse where immigration is concerned these days. No less astounding in its way, the federal government recently began removing basic rights and entitlements even from legal immigrants. We are in effect saying to them, thank you for your years of faithful service to our economy, but things are a little tough at the moment, so we aren't prepared to help you. Besides, you have a funny accent. Now, I'm not arguing for unlimited immigration, you understand, just a sense of proportion in how we treat those who are here already. The fact is, America is one of the least crowded countries on Earth, with an average of just 68 people per square mile, compared with 256 in France and over 600 in Britain. Altogether, only 2% of the United States is classified as built up. Of course, Americans have always tended to see these things in a different way. Daniel Boone famously is supposed to have looked out his cabin window one day, seen a wisp of smoke rising from a homesteader's dwelling on a distant mountain, and announced his intention to move on, complaining bitterly that the neighborhood was getting too crowded. Which is why I say Daniel Boone was an idiot. I just hate to see the rest of my country going the same way. But the scene when he's in, well, for a start, the Newell Post is a really nice way of uh, uh, illustrating that part of his life always feels broken and never gets mended. Mm. And every time he walks up the stairs, he snatches the Newell Post along with him and then kind of he wants to throw it, but he just puts it back in. 
Uh, which is why it's so wonderful that he kisses the breakage at the end. Like, he accepts these flaws and things that will probably never be fixed, and he's fine with it. But as savage as he is with the other kids later on, the the, the sweetness he expresses to Zuzu when uh, she's in the, uh, you know, in, in her sick bed and he's freaking out and worrying about her. There's a really odd shot where after he sort of put her to bed, he then sort of like, like he's got his hand over her head to make sure to sort of read her temperature with his palm, like trying not to be too overt about it. But the actress playing Zuzu is just sort of staring off in uh, like pretty much spiking the camera. It looks more despairing than I think it was supposed to be. It's like something out of the Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the scene when he's in the bar and he's chewing on himself, and that's the opening shot from that The Reason I Watch Movies video that I put on YouTube years ago. I love this thing. Um, that was originally just a mid-shot, and Capra loved it so much, he was like, I wish we had zoomed in on that. So they projected that scene on a wall and then filmed it and slowly zoomed in on that shot so that they could effectively have that because they couldn't just digitally zoom. Mm. So if you watch very closely, you'll notice that the, the film grain goes slightly different for that particular shot. See, that's what we'll find it in the edit means. It's not the story structure will come through in the edit. It's we can tweak and focus when we're actually there. And just that kind of, we'll just project it on a wall and then film that is a really neat bit of sort of garage filmmaking. Yeah. If you just have a series of random shots that you intend to string together, that's not... It'll be a story. Not, you're not making a film. What you're making there is a collage. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's got the requisite amount of fight scenes. It goes on for 120 minutes. Are you happy? I'm never, no, never happy. happy. <laughs> so then, yeah, the thing I don't think we need to talk about that much is when he's running around the place going, oh, my God, oh, this is all completely screwed. Because I think this is the part of the film that modern audiences will understand way more than audiences in the 40s. And they'll be like, okay, alternate, alternate timeline. Cool. I got it. I got it. They will get it quicker than George. Yeah. George is running around going, wait, wait. You know me, don't you? You don't know me? What? Well, how about you? Do you know me? And Clarence is like, dude. No one knows you. No one knows you. You don't, you don't even exist. exist. And what I said earlier about I don't feel like they presented him with a choice. What I meant was, at no point does Clarence say, you know, you're a nowhere man at this point. You don't have a birth certificate. You don't have any kind of history to you. And no one's relying on you for anything. And then just sweep his hand to the dark bridge out of town and say, You can leave now. You can go wherever you want, George. No one's asking you for anything. Clarence, much like Violet, doesn't have it in him to be that level of no, manipulative. Because he that... just tells George straight all the time. Do you know who that makes Clarence if he does that? Tyler fucking Durden. Oh, shit. Technically, yeah. It's only when you've lost everything that, that you're, you're free, free to, to do, do anything. anything. <laughs> okay, but you said it was in the book. Oh, no, 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 absolutely, yeah, hmm. yeah. But that's that would have presented him with all that, that thing you've always wanted is right in front of you. You can actually go now. Yeah. But knowing that the town is in sort of alternate 1985 status and there's Sammy Hagar playing on every radio and no one can drive 55. Watch where you're going! 
pedestrian. George is genuinely unsettled by everything. I love the connection between both Marty and George going to the graveyard and that being their lowest point. That specifically George McFly. Who knew that that would become an important name? And and Harry, the fact that George has, by saving a life, saved many lives. What's that phrase? Save one life and you save the entire world. Kill one person and you kill everybody. It's something along those lines. Yeah. Yes, we're not wise enough to have coined that, but I have heard that before. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it literally, Harry, because Harry has saved so many men in war, him not being there means all those men are dead and all those families are affected mm. and all the people surrounding them. This is... This, to me, this is the core of what Quantum Leap was about. The idea that you, it might feel like not enough when you're helping one person at a time, mm. but every person you help takes that feeling of having been helped and rolls it forward. And also, I said at the beginning that obviously you'd save a little boy who fell into a freezing pond. No one else did. Only George. It does take an ability to just do the right thing immediately without thinking about it. Because you know what feels right and when it feels wrong to do nothing. This is why we need, as a people, people like George. Look, when you can do the things that I can, but you don't, and then the bad things happen, they happen because of you. Sure, this is Bailey Park? No, I'm not sure of anything anymore. All I know is this should be Bailey Park. But where are the houses? You weren't here to build them. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? Clarence? Yes, George? Where's Mary? Oh, well, I, I can't... Uh... I don't know how you know these things, but tell me, where is she? I'm if not... you know where she is, tell me where my wife is. I'm not supposed to tell. Please, Clarence, tell me where she is. And then, like, you know, he asked Clarence in the graveyard, like, oh, my gosh, Harry, he's dead. Whatever happened to Mary? And, like... Clarence can't even say it. It's so disgusting. He's like, yeah, I, um, George, you you do not want to know. And I'm like, oh my god, is she dead? Did she oh become my- the Elephant Man? <laughs> oh, George, I, I'm sorry. She's an old maid. And he's like, no, dude, he is fucking shaking this angel by the fucking shirt collar. Like, tell me what happened. I'm Mary. Tell me. And this dude's like, no, I can't do it, George. You're gonna throw up on me, George. George. She works at a library. <laughs> no. 
It's a nice life. She's got. Yes, she's, got a... she's an attractive woman with a job. What the fuck's wrong with that? She's wearing g- 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 glasses and she, and no makeup. And yep. all of a sudden, the fucking town loses their eyes for a second. They're like Donna Reed, blah. <laughs> like I mean, like more than likely, she would have obviously just George, married. George, you're the only one that would have had her. That's kind of what it is, right? right? She's so ugly to it's, us. She, but I, she I turned down. She turned down the chance to be in Sam Wainwright's harem. But I mean, like honestly, like somebody else would have figured it out with Donna Reed, and Donna Reed would figure it out with somebody else. Or like it's also her totally life fine. Would be better. Let's not even of fuck course, around with this. Course, George be, Bailey is a grade A loser. She wouldn't be living in a leaky shack. No, this can't be happening. March fifteenth, nineteen seventy-three. No. Oh, please, God, no. No, please, God, please, God, no. This can't be happening. This can't be happening! This can't be! I'm afraid it is happening, Marty, all of it! Doc! Again, this is why I feel this is a quintessentially 1946 film. It's not really a Christmas film. It's a movie about picking up the pieces. It's looking at, at what your life has become and how low you've gotten and going, what can I make out of this? What do I actually have? And I love the fact that when he returns to everyone, he's just happy to go to jail. That's the thing, yeah. So this end bit, one of the genius things about this ending is that, yeah, the the great thing where everybody comes and bails him out, that is going to happen. But that is not what turns him around. And ultimately, if that hadn't happened and the ending of the story was George has to go to jail, he'd have been happy with that at that stage because he's got his family and he knows his family are going to be there for him. I'm assuming there isn't uh, the, that crisis doesn't exist in the story the, the, the original book and No, there are no big dramatic things. It's, it's just about him realising that all of those tiny insignificant elements of his life that he has mm not been grateful for and not really seen because they are so small, those pieces are actually what make up the greatest gift. The idea that that you have life and having life, even if it doesn't mean much to you in your lowest moments, is better than not having life. So I wrote down the key things that George did in his life that really had a ripple effect. Rescuing Harry, short term he lost hearing in one ear, long term Harry lived, longer term Harry saved the medical ship and everyone on board and became a hero to the town. Defying Mr. Gower, this is easy to miss. At an early age, he goes into that room and says, why, you dried up old prune? As a kid... He defies this guy and makes an enemy for life. He, he is very polite about it. Mm. Mr. Potter, what makes you such a hard skulled character? You have no family, no children. You can't begin to spend all the money you've got. Oh, I suppose I should give it to miserable failures like you and that idiot brother of yours to spend for me. He's not a failure. You George, can't say George. that about my father. George, You're George. not. You're the biggest man in town. Run along. Bigger than him. Run along. Bigger than everybody. Don't let him say that about you, Pop. All right, son, all right, thanks. I'll talk to you tonight. But in the short term, uh, he gets... Because he doesn't do the delivery, he gets smacked in the ear until it bleeds. He gets terrified by an adult he was supposed to trust. Long term, nobody's going to be poisoned. Longer term, Mr. Gower did not go to jail or become a rum pot. 
even longer, Mr. Gower bought him a suitcase. <laughs> That's a, a representation of, of Mr. Gower still being grateful to him years down the line. Yeah. Uh, standing up to Potter and telling him what's what from an early age, short-term dismissal, long-term personal resentment from Potter, offers to get his spirit broken and then destroys his life. Longest term, the town doesn't answer to Potter. Taking leadership of the buildings and loan, short-term, George doesn't get to go to college. Long-term, he doesn't get to leave at all. Frustration builds. Harry gets to go to college instead, while George waits for him to come back and take over. But that still puts him in the spot of being able to hold the fort and keep those claws away from it. Mm -hmm. Not investing in Sam Wainwright's business, because he didn't. He's resentful of the fact that Sam comes back and is super rich. He's, he's a little bit resentful, but it's it's yeah. uh, Sam teases him. as like, you should have invested in this. should have been richer than astronauts okay. at this point. There's two other things, though, that, that um, would be relevant to this that might not be immediately obvious. Um, Harry being in a position to go to college and not stay at the buildings and loan, if... Harry had been running the buildings and loan when war were declared. Harry would have got sent away to war and the buildings and loan probably would have fallen over anyway because, because there wouldn't George have been wouldn't anybody have been there, to take yeah. over. And uh, the plastics... George had to be in place with his 4F. Exactly, to be able to keep it going. Um, and potentially bail people out who were really struggling financially at that point too, yeah. which he wouldn't have been able to do if he'd not been in charge of a financial institution. Mm. Um, and the other thing is, um, looking back on it from the position of... 20 the 2020s do you really want to be involved in the ground floor of plastics <laughs> yeah well i mean the uh people who made that foam snow and probably dumped it in some <laughs> los angeles lake uh they were given an academy award for technical excellence okay short term mm. but long term that became the la Brea tar pits so <laughs> not investing in sam wainwright's business saving his money, staying at the buildings and loan, short-term wedding adventure funds, $2,000. Medium-term, giving the town those funds. Long-term, trapped in Bedford Falls, living hand-to-mouth. Longer-term, the town saves George financially at his darkest hour. Still longer, Sam offers a lot more money and thus security. He doesn't have to take Sam up on any of that offer. He doesn't need it. But the point is, because Sam was there doing well, this is, this is trying to tell Americans, because some of us do well, they can put the money back into the community rather than hoarding it for themselves. Absolutely, and an extension of that is him getting Sam to come and build the factory in Bedford Falls rather than elsewhere. Therefore, that money gets redistributed around to everybody. Turning down Potter as an adult. This is a reprisal of that uh, standing up to Potter in the uh, the first place. Short term, maintaining meagre wages. Medium term, reinforcing his enemy. Long term, financial ruin. Because eventually he's going to give Uncle Billy an amount of money that would be ruinous if it were lost. And it will get lost because Uncle Billy is pathologically forgetful. And that's fine, but it's George's fault for giving it to Uncle Billy. And he probably knows that, and that's why he gets so angry. Well, you're going to jail. They can't try me for being forgetful. Longer term, financial ruin. Warrant for his arrest. Contemplating suicide. Longest term, he saved the town 
the town saves him. And ultimately, the Mr. Potter is the devil in this film. He is right about a lot of things, but in other ways, he is incredibly wrong. Yeah. He's right about the money will afford you more opportunities. And I don't think anyone ever actually disputes him on that. Mm. But ultimately, the price that has to be paid for that money is too great for good people. Yeah. But here's the thing. What does Mr. Potter do with his money? And I think George even challenges him with this. He never leaves the town. He sits... I know he's disabled, but he sits there and pours scorn on people, goes out of his way to wreck other people's lives. He never does anything to actually make himself happy. He, We never see Mr. Potter fulfilling any dreams he might have had. Oh, I think you were forgetting the little Potter urban achievers, yes, and proud we are of all of them. Well, indeed. <laughs> Sorry, continue. <laughs> no, no. That's, that but that's what I, I said. Say, Both of yeah. them are bitter. Both of them are technically immobile. But one of them has the love of... Uh, one of them has friends and one of them does not. It doesn't need to be an entire town. You just need to know you can rely on some people. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, it comes back to this idea that it's not the money that saves him. Mm. The, the money is incidental. It makes a particular problem go away, but it's not the thing that, that makes him realise he has more than he realised, mm. more than he, he thought he had. Oh, another good thing he does, which I hadn't even thought of, he's nice to Violet, I think he gives her a small loan or something like that. Uh, yeah, she comes to withdraw all of her money from the, the bank, from yeah. the buildings and loans, so that she can leave, and he gives her... He says it's a loan, but they both know she's not... At that point, her she's intention not is back. not to come back. And as he she walks out with him, the guy who's investigating him, Internal Affairs, looks across disapprovingly, as in, that's going on my list, soliciting a prostitute. And it's like, this isn't exactly what it looks like. No. But it's it's another good thing he's doing that he's being on the in the short term seemingly punished for. Mm. So as I've said before, this is kind of a a big Spider-Man film, or at least Spider-Man very much takes his cues from the philosophies laid down here, and they don't have to make it quite so much of a big exuberant outcrying of all of your friends are here to save the day, Peter. But in those issues or in those episodes or in those films where Peter's friends are the things that keeps his life going when everything else is dropping out, that's what this is. The, uh, the Venom saga in Spectacular Spider-Man, the way he gets through that being that his friends stand between him and the symbiote. Mm. Even though it's symbolic, he's led that life. And he has tried, even though he's fucked up repeatedly, especially that version of Peter Parker does play cricket with people's hearts. And it's not fair on them. But he does try to make amends. And he does know when he's been an ass. Now, I did a little exercise while watching this film. I put myself in George's place, and I tried to picture a world where I had never been born. And I narrowed it down to five specific people that I've had a positive effect on, and I worked backwards from there. I'm not going to tell you who those five people are. In many ways, most of them are very personal. And also, it would sound oddly like boasting, but it's if you think about the ripple effect of what you've done, it can be quite profound. And ultimately, thinking about what you've done can also refocus you on what you're going to do. I know a lot of our listeners suffer from low self-esteem, and I have seen you undervalue yourselves on the Discord. I can tell you right now, you're valued. But also, really think about it. What would this alternate timeline, the world 
would skew into be like if you had never been born? And if the answer you reach is that it wouldn't be different enough and that that fills you with depression, then your task in 2023 is simple. Think of one of those five and do it. Do something next year that by the time you get to 2024 and look back, you can honestly say that the world is a little bit better now for at least one person because of me. Then in 2024, do the second of five things. That's all. You have 365 days and plenty of time to work out what that thing might be. It could be charitable. It could be personal. It could be hard graft. It could be creative. It could be just helping someone, in a, in a stranger, in a way that is way above and beyond. It could be putting your head above the parapet. It could be taking a blow for, for someone else. But it needs to feel like a net good. And, as we have seen modelled, you don't necessarily get rewarded for it right away. You may never feel rewarded for it until you cast your mind back and think. Very few of us are in a position to help as many people as George Bailey did, but we can take a step in the right direction. Or is there any more on It's a Wonderful Life? In that case, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And hee-haw! <laughs> <laughs> See, I was going to say Merry Christmas Movie House. Merry Christmas Movie House! <laughs> so I've been Alex Shaw. And I've been Sharon Shaw. And Buffalo, Buffalo Girls, won't you come out tonight? Come out tonight. Come out tonight. Buffalo Girls, won't you come out tonight? And dance by the light of the moon. What did you wish for? <laughs> Buffalo gals, won't you come out tonight? Come out tonight, come out tonight. Buffalo gals, won't you come out tonight? Dance for the light of the moon. Okay, now, I'm going to say a great big thank you and a Merry Christmas to all of these fine folks who keep the School of Movies, Buildings and Loan going. That's my buddy Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, uh, the world-traveled gentleman who bankrolled this particular endeavor, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, uh, a fellow by the name of Daniel Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, uh, Greg Downing, uh, uh, let's see, uh, I lost my thread there. Uh, the point is, Jesse Ferguson and Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Joan Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Wasta, Akat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Pallmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasker, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu hellas Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills, Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and, of course, Valencia Burns. Merry Christmas, School of Movie House! Dance with a gal with a hole in the stocking and a heel kept a rocking and a heel kept a rocking and a buffalo gal. Don't you come out tonight? Dance for the light of the moon. Buffalo 
Oh, and that actor who plays the... What's the name of the bartender? Yeah, Nick. Like, where do you get off calling me Nick? You know what, buddy boy? I ought to smack you upside the face. He, uh, the actor mentioned that uh, the, the film is very, very sweet, which is why it needs a pinch of garlic, which is what he provides. <laughs>